Tonight I'm talking about an integration of contemporary neuroscience and some therapeutic trends, and I'm going to be integrating that with some very early Buddhist teachings, and the goal will be to give us tools to address old irrational behavior patterns, and uh, we'll talk about where they stem from, and hopefully uh, how they are changed. We'll give you a tool in the meditation, which will follow the talk, to actually put it into practice, so you can do it for yourself. So, uh, because we are all, as adults, so uh, left-brain, thought-centric, we tend to uh, find it very odd that so many of our behaviors at times can seem not only compulsive and difficult to control, but can even seem wholly, to a degree, irrational self-sabotaging, getting in our way. And uh, it almost feels like there's this, at times, this force in us that is uh, trying to um, almost get in the way of our growth, of our ability to uh, embrace life and enjoy our our connections and to take up opportunities. I'm talking about things such as obsessive worrying, insomnia, procrastination, conflict avoidance, panic attack, binging, <coughs> the rituals of obsessive compulsive disorder, the preoccupation of anxious attachment, and so on. There's so many uh, behaviors that uh, we can have that are uh, not under our control. And that entirely makes sense because, of course, the brain is not singular hemispheric. It's actually bilateral. We have left and right brains. And moreover, we have two completely different kinds of memory systems and uh, behaviors. One memory system is explicit. Explicit memories are those memories that you can recall uh, when somebody asks you at will, and then when you don't want to think about them, you can put them away. They're stories that you tell about previous relationships, previous work, previous uh, events in your life, and you can string them into a sequential episodic narrative. And then when you're done telling the story, you can file it away. <coughs> and it doesn't really come up unless you, this memory come, doesn't come up unless you choose for it to do so. So it's volitional. And then we have, of course, explicit behaviors, which are actions that we choose to take. You might choose whether or not to have a certain kind of, or when to, when to eat or what to eat. There might be uh, certain uh, choices we make to override one decision with another decision and so forth. And these choices we make are not driven. They're not compelled. They're not 
there's something that we can weigh and we can uh, discuss with others and integrate other people's opinions. So that's one type of, um, of uh, action or behavior. Then there's two completely different uh, sets of actions and behaviors which are implicit. Implicit behaviors and uh, memories, let's talk about the memories first, are uh, those flashbulb scattered memories that pop up out of the blue and we don't want to think about them and they're largely images and they can be of times that were distressing or embarrassing or shameful or uh, uncomfortable for us. And we really don't want to think about them and they come up when we're least wanting to them to. And then, of course, there's uh, implicit uh, behaviors, things like the need, the compulsive need to eat, shop, um, binge on television, social media, the driven compulsion to consume substances, the uh, <coughs> compulsion to avoid difficult conversations, conflict avoidance, and so forth. These behaviors that we have, the anxiousness when we're in a relationship or the need to get away and claim space if we're in a new relationship, these are behaviors that are implicit, which means there's very little choice to them, and that is because they are largely held in the right hemisphere, and they use an entirely different memory system, whereas your logical volitional memories use your left hippocampus to organize your implicit memories, the ones that just pop up out of the blue when you least expect them, and they're disturbing images or memories, those are amygdala-based in the right brain. So what is going on? How does this happen? How do we wind up with these uh, compulsive behaviors? Well, they're actually easier to understand um, than we might initially believe. When we are very young, in the first five or six years of life, we don't actually have the ability to fully form narrative episodic memories, explicit memories that we can turn into a narrative later on. All of the memories from the first five years or six years of life are actually stored in the right brain. And the right brain doesn't string things along in a nice narrative with a lot of commentary that looks good. It's like an inner movie. The right brain, especially the right amygdala, when it stores memories, um, only captures a few scattershot, what's called flashbulb images, an image of this and an image of that, another thing, and they're not linked together with any narrative thread. But what it also recalls, which is very different from the left brain, because the right brain is deeply synaptically connected with the body, so the right brain actually records your emotions, during, ex during an experience. It doesn't record a nice narrative story, but it records how you felt, and it records what impulse, what behaviors you wanted to take during that emotionally charged event. Almost all of the memories that are stored <coughs> in the right brain are 
emotionally resonant, which means to some degree they're either powerfully pleasant or threatening experiences. The right brain does not remember the normal day-to-day of, then I did this, then I did that, and I, you know, had a Diet Coke, and then I, whatever. It doesn't record those types of things. It only records when the amygdala, which is the, the sort of uh, survival hub of the midbrain, lights up and says, holy shit, this is important, where this is like something that's kind of uh, deeply uh, threatening or meaningful, so let's record this. And so, again, it records pretty much everything, not just the images, but also the body sensations, the impulses, the feeling, the way you were breathing, and so forth. Whereas your left brain just records some images, some words, and that's about it. But it records a lot of images and a lot of words. So, (coughs) these emotional memories, uh, which associate an experience with a couple of visual impressions with body states, emotions, and impulses, and behaviors. Later on in life, if you stumble across something that reminds you, reminds the right brain of that early experience, well, guess what? It will trigger not just the emotions that you felt in the initial experience, but it will also trigger the exact same behavioral impulses. So let's give you an example, because uh, this is obviously uh, might be a little bit abstract. When a girl in first grade is asked to stand in front of the class and recite the alphabet or count to ten or whatever, Uh, and suppose she uh, gets very, very uh, flustered, can't remember the letters, and then she might involuntarily start to cry or urinate or whatever, and so all the kids around her uh, start laughing. She feels a great deal of shame, and even the teacher looks away in a kind of embarrassed turn away, and then she feels a very strong impulse to flee rather than stay in front of her classmates and be laughed at. So, 35 years later, she's now 41 years old, and she's invited out of the blue to speak at her friend's wedding. Uh, She's asked to give a toast, and when she starts to stand up, she feels the exact same physiological experience that she did when she was six years old. She feels her body shaking, the hairs in the back of her neck stand up, she starts to tremble, she starts to feel nervous, she starts to feel ashamed, even though she hasn't said anything, and she feels the impulse to flee. Well, what's going on? From her adult perspective, this makes no sense. I'm safe, I know these people, they're not going to laugh at me, but The panic attack is caused by the fact that the right brain is timeless and the memory of that event that says speaking in public in front of people equals shame, equals embarrassment, equals abandonment, and equals a desire to flee. So she feels the exact same thing. Your right brain, the emotional 
hub of the uh, <coughs> frontal lobe, especially the orbital frontal, doesn't learn that things have changed until you give it a series of experiences that say this is no longer true. But because that girl who embarrassed herself, or felt embarrassed, I should say, when she was six, has never had any experiences of speaking in public very much in the intervening years. She hasn't shown the right brain that it's safe. So she still has the exact same reactions, which now as an adult feel irrational. So you following me? So it's not really, even though we view from the, the logical, rational perspective of an adult mind, we view this urge to flee and this panic as irrational, it actually makes total sense given her early experience. It makes total sense that someone who's been sexually abused frequently when they are in a safe relationship would still shut down and freeze because they might not have ever had a safe environment to show their right brain that it's safe for them to relax and be vulnerable and be intimate with someone. If somebody grows up in a family system where they are excessively punished when they make mistakes, they will, the moment they make a mistake, not only start to feel this overwhelming fear, but the next thing they will also learn is to lie so that they won't be excessively punished. And so this adult will years and years and years into his life, whenever he's made an error, whenever he's been uh, selfish, when people call him on it, instead of acknowledging it and simply saying, I'm sorry, I'll learn from it, he will feel the immediate need to essentially lie and to get out of it. Because even though in adult life this behavior is now entirely maladaptive, he still feels that strong compulsion. The child who in an early relationship with his or her mother felt engulfed and smothered in a new relationship will feel the desire to flee and constantly get space. The child who has a relationship with a parent that is unreliable and the parent is never available and the child deeply wants connection will be anxious and want to constantly uh, monitor how committed their partner is. So <coughs> because these behaviors are stored in timeless regions of the brain, they can feel indelible. And in fact, many psychologists believed for a very, very long time that these behaviors were essentially locked, that they couldn't be meaningfully alleviated. However, neuroplasticity research by people like Joseph Ledoux, Bader, Perez Cuesto, Maldonado, the list goes on and on and on. There's a whole book uh, on this uh, new line of research called um, Reconsolidation, Memory, and Therapy um, by Ecker. And um, there was essentially this realization that was discovered in neuropsychology that 
in fact, these memories are not locked, that they can be changed, and that they not only can be changed through exposure therapy, which means if you fear speaking in public, you literally, uh, very slowly over time, expose yourself by speaking in front of a group of a few friends who are very kind so that you feel safer than speaking in front of strangers and then you do it with a wider group and a wider group so you expose yourself to the trigger in a manageable way and that's the traditional way that people address irrational behaviors in CBT, DBT and so forth. They gradually expose themselves to the trigger but there's actually a much faster way to alleviate irrational behaviors, which is, it turns out that <coughs> when a memory that underlines the behavior is active, when the circuit in the right brain that connects the original experience with the original emotions and the original behaviors are active, when we feel the desire to run away from conflict or to do a repetitious OCD behavior or when we feel the urge to binge on food, whatever it is, when that circuit is active, if we integrate the left brain by turning that impulse into a story, in other words, we turn it into a a very simple statement, I believe that if I don't do X, then Y will happen. We turn it into a story. And then once we've done that with the left and right brain integrated, then you look around for disconfirming evidence that shows you that the original belief is no longer true in your adult life. That speaking in front of people will no longer kill you that uh, getting close in relationships will no longer be smothering and engulfing, that uh, w having a conflictual conversation will no longer feel like death because it felt like death in childhood, and so forth. So again, the three stages are, uh, one, activating the original emotional memory along with the emotions itself and the impulses. Two, to turn that emotion into a very basic belief that you can state out loud, which means you're integrating your left brain into the process. And the left brain is not timeless. The left brain has a sense of, hey, wait, this is no longer true. So already you're beginning to alleviate it just by stating aloud the underlying belief. And then three, you look for evidence that tells you this is no longer true. <coughs> so to give you an example, um, one of my favorite ones was uh, uh, in coherence therapy, which uses this technique, a story of a woman who uh, lived with her mother who was in a relationship. She had a, fi a fiancé, and both the fiancé and... The mother, wanted, the mother wanted her daughter, just like the fiancé, to move out and be with her partner before they got married. <laughs> so um, the mother was totally on board. But every time either the fiancé or the mother would broach this subject, the young woman would get 
deeply upset to the point where she couldn't talk about it, would run into her room, lock the door, and threaten to call off the relationship altogether. So thankfully what they did was they, um, uh, uh, she agreed to go into therapy. And the therapist, rather than treating this behavior as wholly irrational, knew there had to be an underlying, very old experience that justified this behavior, that made this behavior, actually, when it originally happened, be now logical in some way. So what he did was he had her uh, free associate what would happen if she left her mother. And after a number of sessions, she said, I feel if I leave my mother, that my mother will die. Now, the moment that happened, the therapist realized he was onto something because up until that point, everything she said was positive about leaving her mother. I'd be able to deepen my relationship. We could get married. I wouldn't have to live at home anymore. But he knew that that was just trying to make him feel happy, but it wasn't the deep emotional truth. But when she said something that justified her staying, which is she believed somehow that her mother would die, then he knew, okay, we're, un we're getting to the real underlying emotional belief. So then he had her free associate, and over time he discovered this trace memory of her father, who was a drunk, attacking her mother, and she, in this memory, stood between them and saved her mother from being attacked. So, of course, now the impulse to stay and to not leave makes total, complete sense. It's no longer an irrational behavior, but to a child, it's a totally rational behavior. Are you following me? So that's the way emotional memories, they, to an adult mind, they seem irrational, but in one point in our life, they actually made total sense, and we just haven't learned that the situation is no longer present. So finally, what he had her do was integrate the left brain by writing out, I believe if I leave home, my mother will die. And she did, so now she's got both sides of the brain, not just the right, integrated. And then he had her look around, the therapist had her look around for evidence that her mother was safe. And she saw that her mother no longer lived with her father, that she lived in a very safe neighborhood right across the street, in fact, from a police station. So there was nothing going to happen to her mother. <coughs> and then she, within a few weeks, left home and moved in with her partner. And they got divorced quickly. No, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I'm just making that up. I have no... It seemed like too good to be true, so you've got to throw a... New Yorkers won't believe that story unless there's a... So, um, anyway, that's the basic of it. Now, I'm going to, for a moment, before we conclude, talk a little bit about a Buddhist technique that predates this and is very similar. The Buddha uh, had this... Uh, teaching or this practice called Yonisa Manasikara, which means wise attention or awareness. And basically what he observed is that um, every irrational compulsive behavior, he said, has a hidden allure that we're not aware of. Does this now sound similar? 
to you. He said, in quotes, uh, when the average individual experiences a negative feeling, they immediately, and by immediately he means automatically, crave something that feels good. They have no other way to respond to discomfort but to, um, but to resist it and to seek pleasure. They haven't learned that these behaviors have hidden allures, which are sadhas, drawbacks, in his day that was known as adinavas, and escapes, nisaranas. Escapes are alternatives that we could take to make ourselves feel safe. I'm going to give you some examples. Uh, allures are what we've been talking about. Those are the emotional, rational beliefs, and they are resistant to logic. And there are things like uh, food binging. When somebody comes home at night, they feel alone, disconnected, isolated. They feel the desire to eat because in childhood, when they were fed, it was the time that their parents paid loving attention or at least some form of attention to them. So being fed to them emotionally feels like being connected. So that's the allure. The allure of conflict avoidance is when we're ch children, our entire life depends on our relationship with our parents and caregivers uh, or, and teachers. So if an adult gets angry with us, it feels like the end of the fucking world, right? It feels like we're going to die. So into adult life, when we have to have difficult conversations with people, we have to tell them things that they won't want to hear, well, it'll conjure up the exact same fear Anxiety, desire to avoid it, desire to not talk about it, desire to just hope it'll go away. Any of you ever had conflict avoidance? Never. Never, okay, good. Uh, <coughs> body dysmorphia, uh, that's a very early tendency that when children feel shamed and ostracized by peer groups, they blame it on the way they dress or something about their body as a way to deflect the, from the fear that it's them themselves, their identity, their personality, their core self that's being rejected. That's far more painful. So to say, oh, it must be my nose or my legs or my clothing, that's easier to live with. Self-consciousness is the allure of it is that it makes us feel that we have uh, we are less likely to make a social mistake. Worrying, obsessive worrying, creates the illusion that we will be safe. A child, when it feels constantly surprised by the actions of adults, develops rituals and behaviors, including obsessive worrying, as a way to feel more prepared and give a greater sense of control. So in adult life, when we worry obsessively, even about things that are very unlikely to happen, it's more because we feel a lack of control in our life. And we're looking for a ritual that will make us feel that we have some greater control, even though the price is that obsessive worrying, well, sucks. It's really horrible. <clears throat> so the drawbacks of all these are very clear. They make us miserable. They make us more isolated. They in no way help. They make us more stilted and more likely to have negative outcomes. But what are the escapes? Well, it turns out the escapes, which is the alternatives to these behaviors, are almost invariably about connecting with other people. Almost all of the early childhood 
emotional impulses are to flee, to avoid, to hide, to shut down, to disconnect, to run away, to protect. But the adult solutions, the escapes, are almost invariably to find someone safe and talk about the emotional state we're in. So, for example, the person who feels the desire to binge on food when they feel lonely, the allure for that is that when they eat, they feel connected. The, the drawback is pretty obvious of what happens every time you feel lonely. Instead of dealing with it, you eat. That's obviously, you can guess what the drawback for that might be. But the escape is, well, to notice that this impulse to eat is driven by a feeling of loneliness or this impulse to shop is underlined by a feeling of purposelessness or a lack of power in my life. So the key in both of those is to alleviate the emotions by finding someone safe and talking about it and also learning to be with the emotion that's underlying it, the, the discomfort of loneliness, the discomfort of feeling powerlessness, and to create what's called distress tolerance where you can be with it rather than acting out on the early behavior. So those are the two tools or outcomes. So <clears throat> the Buddha taught that the way we alleviate these allures or these behaviors is by not giving in to the impulse to act but to observe the feeling and to show ourselves with new experiences that these underlying emotional beliefs are no longer true. That's the entire practice of mindfulness. And that's the entire practice that was recommended by contemporary neuropsychologists. So why don't we put it into place? What we're going to do in our meditation is we are going to do three things. We're going to purposely bring to mind situations that are triggering. We're going to, instead of visualizing acting out on the impulse, we're going to... <clears throat> be with the sensations, then we're going to turn the underlying emotional belief that justifies the impulse into a story, a narrative, a, a, a sentence, and then finally we're going to look for disconfirming evidence. Okay? So, uh, before we do all that, we're just going to spend some time relaxing and settling the mind. So come to... Uh, really comfortable seated position and see if you can uh, just uh, for a moment with your eyes closed just rock if you like so that you're rocking from left to right and front to back like a top in circles and then Eventually, just let your body come to a standstill on its own without you guiding it and just allow your body to feel what is a nice, upright, balanced state. And then gently, if it feels right for you, tilt your head a little bit back so that you're akin to looking at a tall building That prevents slouching. And uh, 
We'll take three breaths, which I like to do to send a message to the midbrain, which controls our sense of safety and security, and just to tell that part of the brain, which doesn't understand words, but it understands how we breathe and how we hold our body. We're talking to the midbrain, we're telling it that we're safe. So, <clears throat> take a nice full in-breath and lift your shoulders up to whatever degree feels right for you and just hold them up for a little while. And then as we breathe out through the mouth, drop the shoulders and really like you just dropped two heavy bags and see if you can gently pull your shoulders just a little bit back to open up your chest. When your chest is open, it tells the dorsal vagal nerve that we are safe. And that sends a message up through the insula to the amygdala, etc., and says we're okay. So a second in-breath and pulling in the belly really tight and just holding it in there and then breathing out, really soft belly. And again, the belly is another area that the dorsal vagal contracts when we feel fear. So when your belly is relaxed, you're telling your brain we have nothing to be frightened about, as well as long exhalations and relaxed shoulders and open chests. All of this is speaking to parts of the brain that don't understand language. <coughs> and for our third breath, Squinching the muscles in the face, locking the jaw, tightening the eyes, furrowing the brow, just making an ugly pinched face. And then when we breathe out, relax, soften, allowing the eyes to settle in the eyelids, encouraging them to take a nice lay down so that they won't be bouncing around behind the eyelids, relaxing and releasing the jaw, any micro-muscles around the eyes, release them, and just also, again, soften the eyebrows. Muscles in your face also are the vagal nerve, but they're the ventral, so they actually connect with a higher part of the brain. <coughs> so, as always, try to cultivate that feeling that you've arrived at a cherished destination, that you've been traveling a long distance and that you've arrived at this remote location that you've been 
looking forward to and you've put down your bags and you've found a really comfortable seat and you've got absolutely nothing to do, nowhere to go, no one to please, you've arrived at this cherished spot and these are the most appreciated moments in life. And the truth is we could have them so much more often because the key is not so much getting to a place that's rarefied, but rather to simply land in a moment with that same underlying body state, feelings that you have when you've traveled to a place you truly love. You don't have to be on a beach to feel relaxed and warm if you allow your body to relax, soften, and put away thoughts about the future or the past and just hear the sounds. It doesn't have to be the sounds of waves. It could be the sounds of cars on the Bowery. You can... Feel the light, in this case, the lights flickering behind closed eyelids. You can feel your body breathing and relaxing. And this moment can be every bit as invigorating and as renewing as the best experience on a vacation. So for a while, just settle into this experience and try to keep in your awareness at all times some ongoing sensation. It could be the sensation of just sitting, your body balancing, or your body breathing in and out. It could be the sounds drifting up from the street and from the room. It could be the lights flickering behind closed eyelids. You can choose one of those to be your anchor or all of them. Again, just the uh, actual sensations that are occurring that you're not creating, that your mind is not creating. <coughs> and when something that your mind is creating, especially a thought, comes up, You can just give it a label if you want. Okay, that's a thought about X. And then just put it aside. Just allow it to be there in the background. Don't try to repress it or get rid of it. 
Or you don't even have to label it. You can just allow it to be there. Try to keep your mind as spacious and open as you can. Not trying to keep anything out, but always in the very forefront of attention, something that's happening in the present that you're not creating. A sound, a body sensation, a feeling. light smells and finally the most important thing to keep in mind is there's nothing wrong if your mind does slip away and get kidnapped by a thought. Over the course of our lives, we've trained ourselves that when we're not focused on something external, that's the time we're allowed to just think (coughs) idly. Unfortunately, idle thinking causes a lot of stress. It's actually been linked with the most stressful times in life. So when you noticed your mind has slipped away from present sensations, just gently, without any impatience or self-criticism at all, with nothing but self-kindness and understanding, just escort your awareness back to the present, No frustration. At the very basic foundation of practice should be to be kind to yourself. If you do nothing else in your practice but just treat every internal experience with compassion, and that would be a wonderful outcome.
If your awareness drifts away and you bring it back, when you return to the present, take a nice deep in-breath again and do the work with relaxing the shoulders, the belly. Each time you return, relax your body. Return to that appreciative, arrived state where you've got nothing to do nothing to worry about, nothing to plan. Remember, this is an opportunity to truly arrive in your life, not be racing from one place to another, but to truly come to a full stop for a moment. And if we don't ever learn to do that, then all we're doing is racing through our lives. So at this point, you can allow 
whatever you've been holding in awareness in the front, whatever sensation, you can just relax. And we're going to move on to the second part of the practice. So I'd like you to bring to mind someone with whom you're avoiding having a conversation that you've been putting off talking about something that's uncomfortable. (coughs) Someone It could not even be something, it may not be something that you've been thinking of that much, but someone with whom it would be really helpful if you cleared up some issues that you're aware of, but haven't been openly discussed, but you haven't had that conversation. Someone you might actively be avoiding because they've done something that feels disappointing and you know you can't be around them without the issue coming up. So just bring to mind this individual And start to feel, if you can, in the body, that feeling of wanting to avoid that underlying feeling of they're going to be angry and this is going to be an uncomfortable experience. I don't want to talk with them. (coughs) For some of us, it'll slightly be a tighter sensation in the belly or in the throat or maybe the muscles in the back of the neck will contract. You'll feel when you anticipate having a difficult conversation with someone you've been avoiding, you'll feel physiological, emotional response of discomfort and an urge to think about something else, to get away, to not deal with it. I just want you to hold that sensation and just to breathe and make it a little bit more comfortable. And then we're going to use your left brain while this feeling is active and just turn it into a belief. I believe if I have this conversation, it will be difficult and so it feels better for me to avoid having difficult conversations. I believe that difficult conversations can be painful or even overwhelming. (laughs) 
whatever language resonates for you. And now while you still have this person that you've been putting off, deferring a conversation with in your mind, but you've also integrated an understanding of the underlying avoidance, I want you to see if you can remember a difficult conversation you've had with someone And even though it was distressing, you still got through it. You didn't avoid it. If you can't think of one, think of a friend you know who isn't conflict avoidant. And visualize how they're capable of saying and stating their needs and setting boundaries and that nothing bad happens to them. Show that inner child that it doesn't have to flee having challenging interactions. So we'll do one more, putting away the peep or the individual you've been visualizing. Now I'd like you to conjure up a scene where you're alone, you feel disconnected. Even the experience of knowing that a bunch of friends are hanging out and maybe you weren't invited or for whatever reason you couldn't attend, so you're feeling cut off. You're feeling isolated. And when you feel this way, what impulse does it activate? For some of us, it's to go on Tinder or Amazon or Facebook, to eat, to turn on Netflix and binge on TV shows, what do you feel the urge to do when you feel lonely, disconnected, isolated? What impulse does it create? Try to find that feeling in your body and just see if instead of running from that feeling we can just be with it. Softening the breath, relaxing the shoulders, make the body more comfortable to hold this feeling. Now we're going to turn the underlying emotion into a statement. 
Something like, I believe that loneliness is too painful to feel. It's better to do and just insert whatever behavior you tend to do when you feel lonely. So now we've got a far more integrated brain working on our behalf. It's not just an emotional impulse and memory. It's now integrated with the regions of the brain that can turn life into statements. And finally, I want you to visualize someone who you could connect with when you feel lonely. Someone who's generally there, who'll listen, who you can share your experiences with, a friend. (coughs) This is what the Buddha called the escape, the way out. Rather than binging or avoiding a feeling, we share and connect with others and disclose how we feel. So at this point, you can let go of all of the content we've just been working with. 